and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 8. Today I'd like to continue from the last episode with our mythical meandering sequence, so this will be part two of that one. Last time out, I cast a very broad net, looking at myths from Mesopotamia, Greece, Italy, India, China, Wales, and looking at subjects ranging from the nature of time to the gods and our relationship with them, and and the relationship with the other. So for me, at least, it was a very joyous skim across some things that I love very much. Today, I'd like to take a slightly different approach and be a little more focused. I'd like to examine endings and what myths of endings have to say about the worth of human beings, the meaning of our lives and actions, if in fact there is any meaning to them. And with this in mind, I'd like to look at two myths with which many people in the West are likely to be familiar. The first is the Christian myth of the Apocalypse, and the second is the Norse myth of Ragnarok. So first, I'll describe each of these, tell a bit of a story, I suppose, and then at the end, what I'd like to do is hold them up together for comparison and see where and how the meaning and worth of a human life, which is my real interest, is rooted, is grounded. So with that in mind, let's begin with the Bible. But of course, with biblical mythology, as with so many other mythologies, the end is often bound up with the beginning. In this case, the end is bound up with the fall, the so-called fall, which is narrated in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Now, we talked a little bit about this myth last time out, but I didn't go into the detail of original sin. This is important for everything that follows in any of the Abrahamic mythologies. So let's take a quick look. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, we have the following. And this is God speaking to Adam, interestingly, before Eve is created. So it's just Elohim and Adam chatting it up in the garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Shortly thereafter, God gives Adam a little nap, yanks out a rib, makes Eve, and the two of them are now together and in the garden. And we're told in Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Following that up immediately in Book 3 is Eve's little tete-a-tete with the serpent that we discussed last week, and her decision to eat the apple and to share it with Adam. That is, after Eve, in Genesis 3.3, tells the serpent about the prohibition against eating the apple, The serpent responds, and this is in 3.4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. All right. So what we have here, then, is the first disobedience. That is, the first sin in Christian mythology is disobedience to God, for which they are expelled from the garden. This burden of sin, sometimes referred to as original sin, sometimes referred to as inherited sin, is passed down generation to generation. That is, Adam and Eve became different types of creature, in a way. And the subsequent story in both Old and New Testaments is the story of that alienation playing itself out in history, and then a subsequent reconciliation, which I'll get to in a moment. It's also important to bear in mind here that depending on the interpretation you read, It's not just Adam and Eve, it's not just humanity that fell here, but the world itself also fell. That is, the world becomes a place infested with sin, and humans become innately 
sinful creatures. And if you don't believe me, just read Augustine or really any of the major theologians. Sin is, uh, I wouldn't call it a birthright because it's not a right. It's, it's a birth blemish on, on all humans. This is an integral part of Christian doctrine. And as I said, the, the subsequent history, particularly the history of the Old Testament, is the story of that alienation from the divine played out in history. And I don't mean literal history, because even the historical books of the Old Testament are of dubious historical worth, but history in the sense of being a cultural narrative, that kind of history. So God, the creator, God, the loving, generous God who walks in the garden, becomes angered, becomes angry, and later even describes himself as a jealous God. So the human condition in Abrahamic mythology is one of alienation from the divine. And all three of the major narratives, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are narratives of the working out and the rectification of that alienation through one means or another. Now, as for the Old Testament, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. My main emphasis is going to be on the grand vision in the book of Revelation. But there are some really interesting prophetic books in the Old Testament that are worth at least touching upon, largely because the writer or writers of Revelation, of course, well, the writers of the New Testament were familiar with the Old Testament. They borrow from it quite freely. That's how they managed to make it look like prophecies are coming true. Now, one of the books that gives a vision of the end of the world in the Old Testament is Daniel, the prophetic book of Daniel. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there are some, some bits that I think I'd like to touch upon just so we have an idea of the kind of end of the world, the kind of picture that we're looking at in, in the Old Testament tradition and then see where it goes in the New Testament. So this is Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish, such as has never occurred since the nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth, and evil shall increase. Or if we move a little further on and take a look at Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, we have another vision of the end of things. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And then again, a little later on, this is Zechariah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. And these books, by the way, are all fairly close together towards the end of the Old Testament. That is, the relatively late books. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall rot while they are on their feet, and their eyes shall rot in their sockets, and their tongues shall rot in their mouths. On that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of a neighbor, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever animals may be in those camps. Okay, these are just uh, a few passages, but they do give kind of an idea of what the end of things is supposed to look like in the Old Testament reckoning. Now, there's a couple of things that we should have in mind here, because much of this, of course, is carried forward into the, into the New Testament narrative. 
to start with, there's a clear distinction between those who are with Yahweh and those who are against him. And this is not at all unexpected. This is a prophecy, a fantasy of the revival of Jerusalem, the revival of the power of the Hebrews, who at the time of composition are a dispossessed and oppressed people. That is, to my reading, because of course I don't credit any supernatural causation to any of this, this is just a uh, the kind of revenge fantasy that you would expect from an oppressed people. And it is also, like I said, insofar as you can situate it in a context of politics, it's it's this worldly. It's Yahweh wiping out the enemies of his chosen people and setting them up in Jerusalem. And this is the reward for having kept their covenant, or this will be their reward for having kept their covenant with Yahweh through all of the centuries of that covenant. That is, this is very much a narrative about judgment. And on that topic of judgment, I think I'd like to move to the New Testament. The New Testament, of course, is the exclusively Christian narrative as opposed to the narrative that Christianity shares with Judaism. And central to that Christian narrative is the incarnation of Christ and the reasons behind it. So a quick word about that, something I want to address in future episodes as well, but for now, just a quick word. The Gospels, of course, all four of them, give narratives of Jesus's life, his incarnation as the begotten son of Yahweh, and his ministry, his execution, and resurrection. The logic behind this, broadly speaking, is that the incarnation and the sacrifice are the antidote to the burden of original sin. That is, we're born naturally deficient, and because of that natural deficiency, we are deserving of eternal damnation and suffering and torture and hell. And we can never become worthy of salvation, worthy of dwelling for eternity with God on our own. There's nothing about us that can make us worthy. And until Jesus comes in and pays that supposed debt, and this is called the doctrine of substitution, no salvation was possible for us. And the only way subsequently to receive salvation is to give yourself over to that myth, to give yourself over to that narrative, to accept the Jesus character and accept the supposed debt that he supposedly paid for your supposed unworthiness or your supposed burden of supposed sin. Now, obviously, it's pretty clear from the narrative that I don't take this terribly seriously. Um, I find the concept of sin to be intellectually incoherent. The idea of an offense against an imagined divinity being the defining factor of one's life is just not something I could ever sign on to, and it's certainly not something I would ever inflict upon my child, whom I love. But as for our boy Yeshua ben Joseph, he does spend a fair bit of time talking with his disciples about the supposed end times, at least in the Synoptic Gospels. That's Mark, Matthew, and Luke to give their order of composition. I'm going to focus on Luke, just because that's the one I've spent the most time with, and quite frankly, it's my favorite of the Gospels. In Book 21, he has a fair bit to say, so we'll pick it up at verse 9 and read till verse 33. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. 
Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter it. For these are days of vengeance as a fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. See also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, there's a fair bit going on here, isn't there? And it's a, it's a bit of a mishmash, really. An interesting mishmash. There are general scary things like insurrections and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, and these will be the signs that the end times are coming. And those things are always happening, so it would seem that the end is always near. And he does say, towards the end of that bit that I read, that the times he's speaking of will come before those living in the current generation have died. And if you read that literally about the end of the world, he was off by a bit. But there's another way to read it, of course, and that is that he's talking about the sack of Jerusalem by the Romans, which happened in AD 70. This narrative is set probably around 30 I guess, so 40 years prior to the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. So it looks like a prophecy, doesn't it? Really, really kind of looks prophecy-ish, you know, 40 years before the fact, except, of course, that the Gospel of Luke was written around 85 AD, that is to say, um, 15 years, roughly, after the sack of Jerusalem. So for the writer of the Gospel, it's actually history. For the character, it's prophecy, but for the actual writer, it's history. In any case, I, I bring this up because, of course, and we'll see this when we get to Revelation, there are a lot of people in the world right now, some of them in very powerful places in that currently lunatic government south of the border, that actually believe this stuff. And many of them honestly do seem to want it to happen, as we'll discuss when I do my episode on Dominionism, which really is going to have to be soon, because I keep mentioning it. In any case, we've got this. The, this narrative in Luke that is historical in a way, but also is often read as prophetic. And I want to keep that prophetic bit in mind as we move forward into Revelation. As for the book of Revelation itself, it is, as you probably know, the last book in the Bible in the canonical order. It was composed probably around 95 AD, so it's roughly contemporary with John's Gospel, maybe a few years older, maybe a few years younger, and is generally attributed to a guy called John of Patmos, who is associated with the church at Ephesus in what is now Turkey. As for the book itself, it is one of the great dream visions of world literature. It begins with a vision of an angel who gives John, the speaker, instructions to the seven churches that are currently active in the region in his time, and then proceeds to a vision of the divine throne surrounded by all kinds of weird and wonderful beasties with multiple heads and many eyes and, and angels blowing trumpets and, and lightning and thunder and all kinds of sound effects. And it's, it's really very exciting. There are, in book six and forward, seven seals that will be broken, each unleashing something very significant, the first four of which are, of course, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, if you don't remember, are war, plague, famine, and country music. And after the seven seals, there are seven trumpets, and I can't reflect on this passage without thinking of the wonderful line from the 
progressive rock masterpiece epic Supper's Ready from Genesis's 1972 album Foxtrot, and the seven trumpets blowing sweet rock and roll gonna blow right down inside your soul. That's music, but I digress. I'm going to read you the first six trumpets now, and this is in Revelation Book 8, Chapter 7, to Book 9, Chapter 6. And here we go. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were hurled to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the stars became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened, a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. Then I looked, and I saw an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, as the blasts of the other trumpets and the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions on the earth, and they were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth on the trees, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days people will seek death but will not find it, and they will long to die, but death will flee from them. And sorry, that was actually just the first five trumpets. The sixth trumpet, a few passages later, releases four angels who had been bound up in the Euphrates. And then in book 11, from verse 15, we have the following lovely passage. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Then the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped him, singing, We give thanks, Lord and God Almighty, who are and who were. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. That is, as with the Old Testament apocalypse, this is very much a judging a sorting of those who are with Yahweh and those who are against Yahweh. And I notice here, and this is something that I've always focused on in the, uh, in the rhetoric of Abrahamic religion, is that it speaks very much of, of servants and of those who fear your name and of, and of people, as it says in 1116, falling on their faces before the throne. That is abasement before the divine. And it's in that spirit of abasement that the judgment actually happens. Those who abase themselves and those who don't. But not before the war in heaven. And that's where we're going to go right now. Because that is where we meet the beast. But before we meet the beast, there is, of course, a dragon that needs to be attended to. Because what's the point of having an end of the world narrative if you don't have a dragon? And I'm not being sarcastic. I love dragons. And incidentally, so does my daughter, though she will not read The Hobbit or let me read it to her because she asked if the dragon in that one was nice and I said no. And then explained that in mythology on this side of India anyway, dragons don't tend to be nice, to which she responded, they just haven't met the right dragons yet. But I digress again. So back to the war. And this is the war of Armageddon. This is the last battle between the forces of Yahweh and the forces of the dragon of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is actually... The beast. 
but we'll get to that. And it's important because, shit, you, mean, you can go online, click YouTube Armageddon or something like that, and you can find literally hundreds of videos of people, grown-ups, talking about this shit as if it's actually going to happen and pointing out the places in Middle Eastern geography where they suppose it's going to occur. <sighs> and if you're looking for evidence of the failure of an education system, you really can't do any goddamn... better than that. But if you read the myth itself as a myth, it is really compelling stuff. Check this out, for example, and this is starting from the beginning of chapter 12. A great portent appeared in the heavens, a woman clothed in the sun with the moon under her face, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, so that she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Then we'll skip down a little bit. The dragon tries to take out the woman and her son, fails, and we'll pick it up again at verse 17. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who kept the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the sands of the seashore, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power, and his throne, and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole world followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So, okay, who are these characters? Generally, the woman in Revelation 12 is read as being the Virgin Mary about to give birth to Jesus, which kind of follows because later on, of course, it's the followers of Jesus who are the ones who are supposed to be saved. And it's the child of this woman that the dragon, who we're told explicitly is the devil, Satan, is out to get. It's also here that we're told unequivocally that the dragon is the serpent, that is, the deceiver. This is one of the places where we get the Genesis serpent, which, as I said, in the original Hebrew myth is just a serpent, being reinterpreted as, as Satan, as the devil, as the ultimate evil. And what this also does as a work of literature is it draws that beginning right up into the end, which is a very effective technique. It's wonderful. O okay, so we've got the dragon and we've got the woman. And we're told that, of course, the other children of this unnamed woman are those who, as it says towards the end of book 12, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. That is, Christians specifically. They're the, they're the ones, they're the only ones who are going to be saved. And saved in this case means rescued from the consequences which they didn't actually take on themselves of original sin, going back to the garden, and wafted up to paradise to enjoy God's hospitality forever and ever. But then we have the beast. Okay, so who's the beast? The devil, the dragon, is the counterpart of, of God. He, and we see him leading a third of the angels, a third of the stars. Uh, this is one of the places where that war in heaven motif is, uh, is explored. And if you want to read a really lovely uh, and extended account of that, read Paradise Lost. But the second figure we get is the beast. And the beast 
is sort of a deputy of the dragon, it looks like here. Uh, the beast is often interpreted as being the Antichrist. So where you've got the Holy Trinity, you've got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and you've got the Unholy Trinity, which is, of course, the devil, Satan, the dragon, the beast, the Antichrist, and then the false prophet, who we're going to meet in a few moments, who corresponds to the Holy Spirit. And all of this is supposed to happen, well... According to what Jesus says in Luke, maybe before any of you are dead 2,000 years ago. That is, the, the end is always near. And this is, this is why I want to read this as a myth, because there's actually more going on here than just really bad history or miserably failed prophecy. But as long as we're on the topic of prophecy, let's talk about the number of the beast, because Iron Maiden and every heavy metal band I grew up with. But stepping aside from Metal Paradise, let's talk about Revelation 13.16 to 13.18. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person, and its number is... 666. And oh my goodness, this brings back fond memories of the satanic panic of my youth, which has never really gone away. It seems every generation or even every few years we come up with or someone comes up with a new interpretation of what the mark of the beast actually is. I can remember when it was your PIN number for your bank card. The latest one I've heard, and I'm pretty sure you've all heard it too, is that it will be incorporated into the coronavirus vaccine, for which reason many fundamentalists will not be getting themselves vaccinated, because mythology is goddamn... <laughs> dangerous when you think it's goddamn real. I've also heard another one recently that has to do with coronavirus as well. This one has to do with many businesses shifting away from cash exchanges to avoid, you know, silly things like people getting sick and dying from touching infected bills. And that the complete reliance, therefore, on digital exchanges is the mark without which we actually can't purchase or exchange things. That's the thing about prophecy. It can be interpreted any way you damn well please to fit your time, your context, your paranoid delusional fantasies of eternal cosmic significance, and the list goes on. I'm really kind of curious to see what the Mark of the Beast is going to be next year. In any case, I skipped right over the false prophet who makes an appearance just before the Number of the Beast passage. And basically his job is to perform signs and wonders and speak on behalf of the beast, the Antichrist, who will, we are told, set up shop in Jerusalem and ultimately rule the world and have everybody worshipping him. And anybody who doesn't worship him, who doesn't take his mark, will be excluded from society, will be an outcast, will be punished. And what follows then is a battle in which the dragon and his forces are defeated. There's a judgment, uh, again, a sorting out of those who were true to Yahweh and those who were against him, those who signed on to the beast's program of stamping and purchasing. And we're told in chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that great serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and locked and sealed it over him, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. And then what follows after this is a period that Christians like to refer to as the millennium, uh, which is a thousand years of Jesus ruling peacefully on earth, after everybody who has received the mark of the beast has been sorted out and sent down to everlasting hellfire, until, like I said, in a thousand years, there's one more little scuffle. This is chapter 20, verse 7 and forward. 
When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat on it, the earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Also another book was opened, the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. All were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then there is the establishment of a, of a new heaven in chapter 21. And effectively, at this point, we're at the end of time. That is, the pollution of original sin is at this point totally purged. The righteous have been saved and can now spend eternity with their loving creator who just condemned most of the rest of humanity to eternal hellfire. And we're told in chapter 22, towards the end of the grand vision, and this is verses 10 through 13, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So once again, we're told that this is happening soon. And there are a couple of details I want to focus on here as well that are references to other things I read you earlier from the, from the Old Testament. For example, the, uh, the reference to the Book of Life. This is from Daniel. And the admonition to the prophet this time to not hide the word, to not hide the book. Whereas Daniel is told, as you'll recall, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth, and evil shall increase. That is, there's a definite literary reference there to this passage here. Daniel looks forward to a time when time will be complete, and Revelation gives the completion of time. At this point, even the dead will be judged, final dispensations made, and the narrative is effectively over. So when I say time stops, that's, that's really it. Nothing, nothing changes after this. So this is the end toward which the world, the cosmos, is moving. It centers around humanity because of that whole original sin thing. As I said, the world fell when we fell in that particular myth. And everything that follows is a consequence of that fall, leading to an ultimate reconciliation of a very few and then a permanent or eternal state, which may as well be timeless, either with Yahweh or in the lake of fire. And as I said, and as I want to pick up in a, an episode coming soon, a lot of people in powerful positions actually take this to be literally what the future will hold, and to be literally coming soon. And they have enough people who follow them to make them very dangerous. But that's a story for another day. Now, though, I'd like to shift to another and much less dangerous narrative, the myth of Ragnarok and the end of the world as told in far northern Europe. This is a very different kind of story from the one we just wrapped up. For one thing, it's not aimed at eternity, if that makes any sense, and I hope it will. It involves a very different understanding of, of the nature and worth of human life and the trajectory that we are on, and it places us in a very different relationship with the divine. One, quite frankly, that I find more satisfying, not that I believe in any conception of the divine as being actually true, I, I view them all as metaphorical, but I find the metaphors of the Ragnarok myth to be particularly wonderful. As for the myth itself, we have it from a couple of different sources. Unfortunately, neither of them dates back 
to the time when this myth was part of a living religious tradition. One source is a poem called the Voluspa, the witch's prophecy, if you like, which is the opening piece in a collection of poems known as sometimes the Poetic Edda and sometimes the Elder Edda. The manuscript dates to the 14th century, but the composition of the actual poems ranges from about 800 to 1100, with Voluspa being probably the oldest or one of the oldest poems in the text. That is, its composition predates the conversion, which brings it as close as we can get to its being something like a living text. The other source is the Prose Edda, or sometimes called the Younger Edda by Snorri Sturluson, composed in Iceland in the early 13th century. Snorri was a Christian, so when we read him, we need to read through a number of layers of his attempting to reconcile these inherited stories with the belief system within which he lives. But he does, on the whole, I think, treat them with remarkable integrity. As for the myth itself, because it's preserved in two separate texts, I think what I'll just do is recount the story and maybe read a passage here and there if that seems to be required, and then we'll go from there. And I suppose we should start with just a little bit of background to get situated. For one thing, just to state the obvious, this is a polytheistic myth, not a monotheistic myth. So the understanding of the divine is quite different, actually. And the interactions of the gods with humans are also quite different from both what we get in, in, um, in Abrahamic mythology and really also from what we get in what might be the more familiar Greek mythology. But as for where to start, and I've been wrestling with that and backing and forthing with myself over it, maybe we should start with the Valkyries. This is a term that probably everybody's familiar with. The Valkyries are the warrior maidens, the immortal warrior maidens who serve Odin, and the name means choosers of the slain. And what the Valkyries do is, after a battle, they comb the battlefield, and they choose the most courageous of the dead to go reside in Valhalla with Odin. Everybody else goes to hell. Hell, in this case, is just the name for the Norse underworld. Christians borrowed it after the conversion. And the Norse hell is not a place of punishment. It's simply a very cold, boring place where not much really happens. Very similar to the underworlds or afterworlds of the, of the Greeks or of the Mesopotamians, where these also are not places of reward and punishment necessarily. They're just places where you end up in a very boring and essentially meaningless and eventless eternity. Except in this case, it's not quite eternity, but we'll get to that. And this is really, really prominent in, in the Norse version. The significance of your life is in this life, not in some afterlife. You're not striving for immortality. You're not striving for eternal life or union with the divine or anything like that. Your objective, and this is something called the heroic ethos, is simply to secure your fair fame in this life, to have your name remembered. That is, your immortality is not a literal immortality where you actually go on to live forever. Your immortality is the immortality of your name. And I want to say a bit more about that after I've finished the narrative that I'm about to tell you. But this is one key difference between many of the pagan mythologies and Abrahamic mythology. You're, you're not aiming at an immortality in another world, necessarily. You're aiming at establishing your legacy, I guess, in this world. Now, as for Valhalla, this is simply Odin's hall. The, the Hala element means hall. Val, by the way, means slaughter, same as Valkyrie, choosers of the slain. It's the same root. So the name for what's often understood as the Norse paradise, the Norse uh, best-case scenario post-mortem, if you translate it literally into English, is slaughter hall. That's what you want to do. You want to go to slaughter hall because otherwise you go to hell and are very bored for a very long time. So, okay, what do you do in slaughter hall? And this is, this is wonderful because 
because this myth basically takes the life of the hall as lived in real time in Norse society and simply transposes it onto another level of narrative. So Odin is the lord of the hall, and he provides hospitality to everyone there, just as the lord of an actual hall, both in, uh, in Scandinavia and in Anglo-Saxon England pre-conversion, for example, or, or any other part of the Germanic world, would provide hospitality. But the flip side of that is having accepted the Lord's hospitality, you've entered into an ethical bond with him, so that if he ever needs your services, your sword will be at his disposal. And this isn't to be understood as any kind of a mercenary bond. It is, and I really need to emphasize this, a deeply ethical bond, and probably the most important bond in that society. And this is what's going on in Valhalla. So, a day in the life of Valhalla consists of these great warriors fighting each other during the day and feasting and celebrating at night because these are the activities of the hall. The hall is the center of the warrior band and the activity of the warrior band when not fighting is is feasting and that feasting again is not mere self-indulgence. It's it's a shared community. Feasting is a celebration of community and an active construction of community. But it's also not construction of community to no purpose. Feasting has a purpose. That is, this isn't just a place of overindulgence. In fact, overindulgence was frowned upon. So why is Odin doing this? Well, that's the point of the story. Because Odin knows something. Odin knows that Valhalla is not permanent. That is, this isn't anybody's eternity. There will, according to the myth, there will be a final confrontation between Odin and the other gods, and Loki and the forces of chaos and the fire giants and a number of other really fun figures like the, the Midgard serpent and Fenris wolf. And what Odin is doing by sending out his Valkyries and bringing the best warriors to his hall is assembling his army so that when that final reckoning comes, he's ready. But it gets better because what Odin also knows is that he is going to lose. This is predetermined and it's that knowledge of certain defeat that I find particularly beautiful in this myth. Uh, and it's the center around which I think the entire meaning of the narrative revolves. But okay, how does the end come about? Well, it's like this. Wanting to know the future, Odin ventures to the roots of Yggdrasil, the world tree, and asks the Norns, the three fate figures, what the future will hold. And what they tell him is that the events that will spur the end of the world will begin with the death of his son Baldr, the, the best and most beautiful of the gods. So what happens then is that Baldr's mother, Frigg, travels the world exacting promises from everything, the, the rocks, the trees, the creatures, not to harm her son Baldr. And they all promise. So Baldr becomes effectively invincible. But of course, the Asir, the Norse gods being a fun-loving bunch, they decide to make the best of this by turning it into a sort of a party game. And what they do when they're feasting is they, they, they get Balder to stand up at the front of the hall and they throw things at him, axes, spears, arrows, what have you, and they just bounce off of him and this is very entertaining. Unfortunately, Balder's younger brother, Hod, is unable to take part in these festivities because he's blind. He can't see where to throw, where to shoot. And unfortunately for him and for Balder and for everyone, Frigg overlooked, or neglected rather, to exact a promise from the lowly mistletoe, which Loki, in the guise of a, of a female giant, wheedles out of her in questioning. So one day, when they're gathered in the hall, using Balder for target practice, this old crone shows up and approaches Hode and asks him why he's so sad. And he says he's sad because he can't take part in the festivities. He can't play. He can't take part in what the rest of the community is doing. 
So this old crone, who of course is Loki, says, okay, I've got your back on this. Here, take this arrow and just aim where I tell you to aim and shoot. And Hode does. And the mistletoe arrow kills his brother, who is immediately wafted down to hell. Now, knowing that this is going to bring about the end of the world, and not wanting the world to end, Odin knows he has to do something. So, he sends another one of his sons, Hermod, down to hell to try to get Baldur back, to get hell, the goddess hell. Hell is both the underworld and the goddess who reigns over it. He sends Hermod down to hell to convince hell to let Baldur free. He even lends him his eight-legged horse Sleipnir to speed him on his journey. So Hermod goes down to hell and... And he finds them in the hall in hell, because this too is, is simply a metaphorical representation of the life people actually live. And he pleads with hell, the goddess, to let Balder free. And she takes some sympathy on him. She takes some pity on him and says, if you can get everything in the world to weep for Balder, I will let him go. And Hermod returns to Odin and gives him this news, and then Odin makes a circuit of the world, trying to get everything to weep for Balder, and everything does, and everybody does, except this one old crone, who is Loki, who will not weep. And because Loki will not weep, Hell will not release Balder. The other gods obviously know that it's Loki, so even though he flees and, and hides in a cave, they track him down and catch him. And even though he disguises himself as a salmon, they catch the fish and he transforms back into Loki and they bind him in a cave. Not only do they bind him in a cave, they kill his sons and use their entrails to bind him. And he's placed under the fangs of a serpent dripping poison, which lands on his forehead and burns him. So his wife, Sigyn, stands behind him with a bowl, catching the poison. But every now and then, of course, the bowl fills up and she has to leave and empty it. And Loki is burned by the poison dripping from the snake's fangs. And he writhes in agony. And this is what causes earthquakes. And this right now is the state that we're currently in. That is everything I've described up until now in the myth is history. And Loki is bound. But he won't stay bound because nobody holds the trickster forever. And it's when Loki gets free that Ragnarok begins, that the end of the world is initiated, that the war between the gods and the forces led by Loki, uh, the fire giants from Muspel led by Surt, the Midgard serpent, that serpent, the dragon that encircles the world and is also a child of Loki, Fenris Wolf, and the other forces opposed to the Asir and the Vanir, and these will come against the gods, led by a ship with Loki at the helm. And it's to meet these forces that Odin's been sending the Valkyries out to choose the best warriors. And again, it's already determined that Odin, that the gods, are going to lose. But there's more to it than that, because not only are the gods going to lose, many of them are actually going to die. Odin will die in the jaws of the wolf, the great wolf who is chained and then let free. Thor will kill the Midgard serpent, he will slay the dragon, but he himself will be fatally wounded. He'll walk nine steps and then fall dead to the ground. Now nine is a significant number here. There are nine days in the Norse week. So there's something going on here about time. I'm not entirely sure what. And the other gods also, many of the other gods, will meet their end in this battle when the stars go dark and the world is overcome by fire and everything ends. Except that everything doesn't end. And it's worth noting as well that the, the Ein Harrier, the Odin's chosen warriors, they die. They don't have an eternity. That is, they're not fighting for some reward in a hereafter they will never have. And here is where I find the greatest ethical beauty in this myth and some of the greatest ethical beauty I've ever actually seen. So I think I'd like to address that before finishing off the narrative. 
Because as I said, my, my main interest in all of these myths that we're discussing is not whether or not they're literally true, they're not, but what they say about human worth, about the value of a human life, about meaning, and the fate of the Einherjer, the fate of Odin, which are the same fate. Odin, in many ways, is just the Einherjer, the warrior writ large in, in mythic language, but he embodies the fate of the human beings as well. Their fate is ultimately annihilation. Even though a new world will emerge and Odin's sons and the younger gods will reestablish a society, will reestablish a divine society, and even though other people will emerge, that is, even though the cycle will begin again, and I think it is a cycle, this isn't an emergence into a perfect eternity as we have in, in the Revelation myth, because the final lines in Voluspa go as follows. There comes the dark dragon flying, flashing upward from Nidafels on wide, swift wings. It soars above the earth, carrying corpses. Now she will sink down. That is, this cycle will continue. We're in, as I was discussing last episode, we're in an echo of, of cyclic time. We're not in linear time here. This just goes on and on and on. But at the same time, it goes on and on and on with different characters. So for each character, they have their one shot to matter. They have their one shot to face down the giants, to face down the demons, to face down their own extinction. And this is where the fate of Odin and the fate of the Einherjer comes in. And this is what I find particularly compellingly beautiful about the Ragnarok myth. Put simply, it's this. It's the story of the courage, or better maybe to say, the story of the strength of character it takes to face the inevitable, to face one's inevitable extinction, to look it in the face, to look it in the eye, without hiding behind the comfortable illusion that you're going to get some reward after, that you're going to live forever in bliss. No, you're fu- not. You're going to die. And the world will end. The world that you experience, the world in your consciousness, that world will be permanently extinguished. So how do you face that? Do you hide behind comforting narratives? Do you place the meaning of your life outside of yourself, outside of the world in which you live in some imagined hereafter that you will never see? That is, do you see meaning as a thing that you must find? Or do you see meaning as an activity in which you must engage or not? Do you face the end of your being with the courage to simply look at the naked facts that your consciousness is a product of your brain? And when your brain stops functioning according to every shred of evidence we have, your consciousness ceases to exist. And that's it. That's the end of you. Do you have the courage to look at those facts and still live a meaningful life? Still embody meaning in your actions? That to me is courage. Not leaning on the crutch of an imagined hereafter. Knowing that the end is coming and facing it anyway. And facing it not in despair. You know what Thor does when he knows he's mortally wounded? He sings. He sings. He dies singing. And he doesn't come back. And there are some big differences here, aren't there, between the, the Ragnarok myth and the Revelation myth. For one, as I said, the value of human action in the Ragnarok myth is centered in the one human life that you actually have. If there's going to be meaning in your life, that's where it's going to be located. That's, I think, a, a good reading of this myth because, as I said, even Odin dies and Thor dies singing. And nobody, nobody abases themselves to anybody. There's a sense here as well of innate human worth, of innate human dignity. There is no original sin. There is no sin in this body of myth. That particular element is, I would say, a pathology of the Abrahamic mythologies, and it poisons human consciousness against itself. I would go so far as to say that the notion of original sin in my humble opinion, is the biggest psychological calamity that humanity has ever concocted. In the Norse story, 
we fight beside the gods, and we share the fate of the gods. And I find with both of these that where their value lies is not in any claim they might make for being literally true, but rather in how they reflect on, on the human psyche and how they reflect on the way we see our own lives. And the warrior element is simply a metaphor as well. That is, it's, it's, a, it's a poetic image of, of struggle, the, the kinds of struggle that everybody faces in life. I'm no warrior. I'm not a violent person. I haven't thrown a punch in anger since I was 18. And I expect I will never have to do so again. But everybody struggles. Everybody faces these questions of, of whether to act or whether not to act. What we can bring to the actions that we engage in. The integrity with which we make our decisions. The honesty with which we look at the world. And the courage to find our own meaning in the world. And I think this is also largely bound up in the juxtaposition of these two myths. In the one, meaning is transcendental. It, it comes from above. You need to align yourself with this transcendental thing that is over and above the circles of the world. The Norse gods are not over and above the circles of the world. They're within it. These are very different positions. Because the Norse myth recognizes that we all face extinction, it bounces that question of meaning back to where it belongs. That is right in us, in the heart of our own being, in our actions. Meaning here, and I, I've been obsessed with this question for a couple of years now. Meaning here is not, is not a thing. It's an action. You don't find meaning, I think. You do meaning. And the Ragnarok myth is about doing meaning, about embodying meaning. And I can think of nothing more meaningful in that sense, or I can think of no better poetic illustration of meaning than the strength of character required to face certain extinction with no illusions of continuity afterwards and still live up to your commitment because that's the other side of this. The Einherjer have that ethical commitment to Odin because they've accepted his hospitality. And that's where the meaning that's where the value, the purpose, the dignity of a human life emerges in this myth. It's not just the heart of your being. It's not just you, but it's how well you live up to your commitments. That is, it is about integrity. And it's also about what you do for society. It's not just about being courageous, but it's being courageous for the right reason, doing something that is worth doing in itself. And that Lord-Warrior bond is a wonderful poetic metaphor for any ethical commitment. And that heroic ethos, as I mentioned earlier, is not merely about killing a lot of people as a warrior does. It's about doing something, engaging in action that is worth doing and being remembered for reasons that are worth being remembered for. And to do that, as with the Einherjer and Odin, requires an ethical commitment requires something other than naked self-interest, but doesn't require a commitment to something that is transcendental, that is outside the world. This is all mediated through society and the actual relationships that we engage in. That is, meaning is something humans do. And it's arguably something only humans do. So speaking, speaking as someone who holds no supernatural beliefs or commitments, it is possible using this set of metaphors to still speak of meaning to not be nihilistic simply because i'm not superstitious about some part of me surviving my death that is the notion that meaning must be rooted in something transcendental something supernatural something eternal is is patently nonsensical and this is something i'm going to address in future episodes as well but it's patently nonsensical when you see meaning as I think the Ragnarok myth does, as something that is enacted, not discovered. And in that sense, even in describing the end of the world, this is not a myth about dying. This is a myth about living. Living the only life that anybody ever has. Or living the only life that anybody ever knows they have. And facing the inevitable end with dignity. And doing so like Thor. Thor slays the dragon, and he dies with his eyes open, and he dies singing. And when your time comes, and this is a wish from the depths of my heart, I hope you slay your dragons, and I hope you die singing. 
and I hope as well that you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. And as always, if you would like to get a hold of me, I'm at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com or Eclectic Humanist on Facebook or at EC Humanist on Twitter. And I would love to hear from you. Thank you very much. And until next time, be kind to each other.